The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look at the book of James, chapter 4. It's been a blessing going through the book of James together. It's so appropriate, the message, uh, because it's relevant and practical to our church. This little epistle was written 2,000 years ago. The truth is still uh, relevant because Scripture is God's living Word. It is alive. And the message that James wrote as a pastor and a prophet 2,000 years ago is a message that our church needs to hear, the Church of America needs to hear, but individually, GBF, we need to hear this. And also on an individual basis as Christians, we need to hear what James has to say. And so now we're going to look at verses 11 and 12, uh, which is part of the greater context of all of really chapter 4. By way of summary, those of you who have been with us, in James chapter 1, James is speaking to the people as a pastor with a pastor's heart as he's trying to encourage his saints that of the reality as you live this life from year to year and decade to decade, God knows that you're going to face temptations and trials. So that's James is trying to encourage us through truth and the Word of God in chapter 1 of how a Christian can deal with temptation and trials in this life. And then uh, so James speaks as the pastor in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2 he's got some pastoral exhortations, but also encouraging the saints that as you live this life, don't get stale, don't get passive, uh, keep walking the walk, stay strong, don't get so easily discouraged as can happen with relentless trials in this life as we're just waiting and waiting for Jesus to return. And he knows that apathy can kick in. And so he urges us as Christians to keep walking the walk of faith by doing good works that are appropriate for the Christian life. And then in chapter 3 and 4, they kind of go together. Uh, James encourages us and tells us what godly, true wisdom is about because as you are in the assembly and you continue to grow in God's Word and you're hungry for knowledge and spiritual truth, one of the temptations or vulnerabilities that Christians can face as they grow in learning the Word is they can become prideful or arrogant. Knowledge puffs up. And as we study the Bible, we take in the Bible, we take in knowledge, we take in doctrine, there's a susceptibility or temptation to become puffed up with what we know and arrogant. And so he addresses that in chapter 3, that that was happening in the Christian churches and you had a bunch of know-it-alls, spiritually speaking, and they wanted to look down their nose at other Christians and they all wanted to be teaching as an authoritative source in the church. And James says this should not be. That's prideful behavior. You need to stop. And then finally, we kind of reach a crescendo and height of the epistle, I think, from James's point of view, and that's in chapter 4, where now James is not talking as a pastor or as a sage, as much as now he kicks it into prophet mode. And he's a fiery, hot prophet in James chapter 4. And we saw that, some of the terminology he was using. He is talking to churches, people he knows, fellow believers, and he's using these exhortations and terminology like, you commit murder. Wow. As we saw in verse 2. You adulteresses. Whoa. That's prophet mode. That's how the Old Testament prophets spoke to the people of Israel when they needed to hear it. Truth from God. So it's, it can shake us up, but it's a good wake-up call. But it's serious because what is driving their sin that creates disunity in the body, the heart of it all is pride. It's individual pride. And it manifests itself in certain ways, and pride is very divisive to the body at large. And so he needs to address and expose this sin of pride at its heart. And he does that. And he calls it out. You become prideful. 
You become divisive. You become self-centered Christians. You're poisoning the church. You're poisoning fellow believers. You forgot your place. You don't respect God with an awe and reverence and fear anymore. Who do you think you are? That's really how he closes this section in verse 12. And we're going to see that. So that's kind of the context here. Is James continues to speak at a prophet and he fires away with these exhortations and commands of what we need to do. Imperative after imperative. And he brings on the imperatives as well in verse 11 and 12. So let's go ahead and look at those. In these two verses, uh, James is reminding us of another truth that we need to be aware of, that we need to guard against, that unfortunately happens frequently in any church, has been happening in the churches for 2,000 years, because it's a problem that will continue to happen wherever you have sinners gathering together for a prolonged period of time. And he addresses that very specific sin in verse 11 and 12. And so today's sermon I called, Judge Ye Not, or literally, Stop Judging. Another appropriate title would be, Stop Slandering Each Other. And so that's 11 and 12. Follow along as I read verse 11 and 12, the verses we're looking at today. James continues after talking about humble yourself before God. You've got a prideful attitude. Guard against your pride. These are Christians he's talking to. This could be any one of us. By the way, as we listen today to the truth of James, don't be thinking about everybody else or somebody next to you. Thinking, boy, I wish they heard that sermon today. So and so, they needed this sermon. No, I need this sermon. You need this sermon. Let God speak to you. Because that's the intent. Verse 11. Do not speak against one another. The NIV says, do not slander each other. So that's the main command that we're going to be talking about. Do not slander each other. Do not speak against one another. That's it. That's all we're going to talk about. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law, the law of God, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judges your neighbor? Wow. This is another one of those, boom, right between the eye, imperatives, exhortations, Uh, that James does repeatedly through his epistle to shake us up and to wake us to reality, to examine our own selves and our behavior. Is it fitting with a consistent testimony of being a Christian? And slander in the church is not. But James is a realist. He knows that slander goes on in churches. Slander goes on in the best of churches because the churches he's talking to were founded by the apostles themselves. Can you imagine that? Churches that were started and pastored by the apostles had problems. And that's why Paul wrote all of his letters to address their problems. So if they had problems, guess what? We probably got problems. Yeah, we do. So God is realistic. He cares about us. He wants to address these problems. And so he does. So in today's sermon on Judge Not, I broke it up into four truths I want us to hang our thoughts on, four points of emphasis, all developing this exhortation to do not slander uh, one another. So let's go ahead and look at those. Uh, point number one that I have there is that uh, slanderous believers have an unloving view of God's children. Slanderous I put believers in there because James is assuming these are Christians. And I put the word slander in there because 
The New American Standard says do not speak against one another, but the NIV says do not slander one another because slander is a legitimate, very accurate translation of the Greek word being used. Quit slandering each other. So slanderous believers have an unloving view of God's children. Not only do they need to stop slandering each other, but they need to understand really what's going on when you slander someone or speak against someone. What's at issue? The issue is your incredible lack of love. It's a very unloving thing to do. So we need to get called out on the carpet for this, but a couple of highlights and details of the verse here, even the words used, very important to lay the foundation. First, I want to talk about that phrase there in the New American Standard, speak against. Okay, That's really just one Greek word. The NIV says slander. The New American Standard says speak against. Don't do that. And Actually, it's a command in present tense, meaning stop doing that. This was going on in these churches. He heard, James heard about it. Maybe he even witnessed it firsthand. I cannot believe these Christians that heard the gospel that I've pastored and discipled, some of them are slandering each other on an ongoing basis, even in the church. It needs to stop. So that's his exhortation for us today. Do not speak against, do not slander one another. Uh, the word for slander, it's a compound Greek word. And it's the word for speak, laleo. That just means to speak, neither good nor bad. It's just, it's verbal communication. Talking. That's what the word means. Then he adds a preposition on the front of it to define it and qualify it. Kata laleo. To speak down about somebody. To speak against somebody. And so the emphasis there is on the preposition and that negative nuance it brings when you're talking about somebody, you're speaking down on them, you're speaking against them, you're speaking uh, antagonistically about this person that you are naming and talking about in your conversation. Talking down about somebody. In other words, instead of not edifying and building them up, you are tearing them down. And you're doing it verbally. This isn't just in your mind. It's not primarily in written communication. This is verbally going on. Really a normal conversation as a so-called Christian, in the church. Stop. So that's our exhortation here. By the way, this word is translated in the New American Standard in 1 Peter, just a couple pages over. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 translates it as slander. The exact same word. So it's verbal communication, happens in conversation. Uh, the almost exclusive use of this word in the New Testament and other Greek sources at the time, it's verbal conversation and communication that is tearing other people down and you're doing it behind their back. They are not present. This is almost a synonym for gossip. So that's what slander is. Talking about somebody with an evil motive to tear them down, to shred them to pieces, to lift yourself up, to tear them down doing it verbally in conversation with somebody else to win them over to your side and also to poison their thinking towards the person you are talking about, a fellow Christian you are talking about. That's what slander is. That's how it's used in this context. So it's talking about somebody behind their back when that person is not around that you are invoking their name and denigrating their reputation and their character. And you're doing it to somebody else. And in this context, it's probably a fellow Christian you're doing this. So it's speaking about somebody behind their back. In contrast to, look at James chapter 5, verse 9, where it says, Do not complain, brethren. So slander is different than complaining in the way that the word complaining is going to be used by James and in other places in the New Testament. Complaining is when you go up to somebody to their face and complain. 
illegitimate. You whine, you complain, you moan, you give grievances that probably aren't legitimate. But you're doing it to their face. Slander is behind their back. That's the big difference. And like I said, it's katalao is kind of a general term, so there's a lot of stuff that fits under the umbrella of that term, including gossip, being malicious verbally about their character, slander. So that's what uh, slander, this word means, speaking against someone verbally, negatively, behind their back to someone else to denigrate their character so that you can lift yourself up. By the way, in the book of James, in the Christian community, this is usually done in the context of spiritual conversation, religious conversation, biblical conversation, critiquing another Christian in light of some self-righteous attitude or assessment. We know that because of the way uh, this bigger context is of the word zelon and zalute, which is translated as jealousy or zealously in chapter 3, verse 14. In chapter 4, verse 2, it is a religious context of evil, wrong, illegitimate speaking about somebody else. So that's what slander is in this context. Talking about somebody behind their back, a fellow Christian, denigrating them to somebody else to tear them down, to lift you up, which poisons the mind of the person you're talking to against that person. And by the way, this word slander is used uh, in terms of the content that's being used. It can either, you can either be talking truly about somebody behind their back, with accurate information, or the things you could be saying aren't true and misrepresent reality. It doesn't matter. The content is not the issue. It is your intent. It is malicious slandering of a person who's a believer behind their back. That's what it's talking about. And it needs to stop. By the way, one commentator said that the sin of slander and gossip is the number one sin called out by God in the Bible. I didn't have time to research that from Genesis to Revelation. But he was a pretty reliable commentator and I looked at the many verses he gave. Can you imagine that? The number one sin highlighted and called out by God in the entire Bible is gossip slash slander. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, slander, gossip, Speaking that breeds disunity in the body of Christ is actually put in a special category by itself in ways that other sins are not. You can read it in Romans 16. You can read it in Titus 3, where basically the apostles through the Holy Spirit gave zero tolerance in the church for malicious slander about another believer behind his or her back in the church community. Zero tolerance. Why? Because it's the easiest sin you can commit. Because you just do it with your mouth and you take your mouth everywhere you go, don't you? And we're talking all the time. Blah, blah, blah. As a matter of fact, that's what the word means. Katalaleo. Katalaleo. Blah, 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 blah. Onomatopoeic word. Seriously. And it's the easy. It is convenient to, to commit this sin. So not only is it convenient, we do it all the time. It comes easily by nature because of our sin nature. It is also more destructive, more quickly destructive than any other sin in the church. Poisoning another believer's mind about another believer behind their back. Satan will use that like nothing else to create disunity and division in the church and destroy, undermine Christ's main calling of the body of Christ, and that is to live as one, live in love with one another. As Jesus said in John 13 and John 17, we looked at that, the unbelieving world is watching and we were, when we are harmonious and unified, it gives a testimony 
to the world that they need to see of what Christ is like. And the quickest way to undermine the testimony of Christ and how beautiful He is in the world to unbelievers is to do unloving things that can be manifestly seen towards another believer, a fellow believer. Jesus said that in John 13 and John 17. That's why slander and gossip is so devastating and should have zero tolerance. I don't know, I must have got this in my brain early on as a Christian or we, early on when I became a Christian and when we first got married, we had, God brought a lot of godly people in our life to disciple us, to mentor us, to train us. And apparently one of the truths that got through was how important this sin is in terms of not letting it happen in your family life, especially among your children. So I look back, thinking 19 years of parenting, we've been pretty, I mean, we haven't been perfect, but that, that is a sin that has zero tolerance at the McManus house. When a, a sibling slanders another sibling when that sibling isn't around, talking about a sibling behind their back, it's just zero tolerance. <clears throat> Don't go there. Wrong answer. And we pretty much tried to snuff it out when our kids were this tall. So that for the most part, it has not been an issue for our family. That's a blessing. But that's because of how important it is, how destructive it is. And maybe I'm hypersensitive to it because I grew up in a home with a lot of siblings and it was not a Bible-believing home. And destructive behavior, destructive verbal behavior was rampant and unchecked because there wasn't a biblical perspective on how to gauge it. So God takes it seriously in the church as well. I want to look, because this is going to be relevant to the rest of what he says in verse 12. Go back in your Old Testament, if you've got a Bible, to Leviticus. Can anything good come out of Leviticus? Yes, every once in a while, if you come across the right verse. Look at Leviticus 19. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So this is 1400 B.C. This is the children of Israel wandering around, or about to wander around for 40 years in the desert. And God is speaking through Moses. And God is giving Moses the law, the Ten Commandments and the other 600 and some odd laws that were written down for the children of Israel. Decrees from God that revealed God's character and His expectations. And here's one of those laws that's relevant to what James is talking about today. And that's, as you live in community with one another as fellow believers, as Israelites and believing Jews and Yahweh God, you need to conduct yourself with some social protocol and decorum to preserve the unity among God's people. And here are some boundaries to keep in mind as you do that, living in a way that pleases God corporately together. Because it is hard to live corporately together without messing up because we are all sinners. And we get on each other's nerves and we all have our own failings. We all stumble in many ways, as James said. So here's this command. Leviticus 19:16 through 18 says, You shall not go about. Okay, this is as you live your daily life as a slanderer. Don't do it. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. See, among your community of people, among the believers. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about the world. We know the world does this by way of a living. We're not going to correct that. As a matter of fact, if you're David Letterman and those kind of guys, you get paid to do that. You get paid to slander and whatever else. He's talking about the believing community. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act uh, against the life of your neighbor. See, you're not supposed to go against a fellow neighbor. That's what James is talking about. I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I'm Yahweh God of all of God's children. Don't speak against one of my children. Verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen. Matt, that's, he gets to the motive of it. What is the motivation of when somebody's speaking against another Christian behind their back? It is hatred. It's a strong word, but that's what it is. 
You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. See, when it says, do not judge lest you be judged, it's not talking about saying you can't point out sin to your fellow believer because we need to do that. We need to confront other people with their sin. We need to do it the right way and the appropriate way. He's not talking about that. He's talking about uh, behind somebody's back, not talking to them at all, and probably the issue at hand isn't even a sin issue. That's what's sad. Usually, it's an issue of preference in the church when we start slandering somebody. Uh, 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Uh, you may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin against, oh, because of him. Uh, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance. You're not the judge. God is the judge, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But here it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when you are slandering another believer behind their back, you're undermining this law of God. You're not loving that person. You have usurped the role of God. You have bypassed the law of God. So there's a lot of wrong things we do when we fall into this trap of gossiping about or slandering another believer behind their back. So let's go back to James. That law is important because that law James is specifically referring to. Uh, a couple other things about this word slander. Uh, it is a, in present tense in James, so it was an ongoing behavior that needed to stop the very strong command. Uh, and then he goes on and says, uh, by the way, when you speak against another person, when you slander somebody behind their back and talk about them behind their back, really what you're doing is you're judging that person. You're judging their motives illegitimately. You're judging things about their life you have no knowledge of. You're judging a, of a situation you don't have all the information to. Who do you think you are? You have usurped God's role as judge. We're going to see that. And those two words together. Do not slander a brother. Do not judge a brother. They go together because slandering is the action you are doing. Judging is the attitude you are doing it with. Judging. Literally, this word where it says judging is often translated as condemn. Wow, when you slander somebody behind their back, you know what you're doing? You are acting as a judge and you're condemning them. Condemning them inappropriately. Don't do that. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or condemns a brother or judges a brother speaks against the law. So I just want to say this. As we are talking throughout today at the fellowship meal, as you're driving home from church, when you're evaluating this sermon at home with your family tonight, as you're talking about Pastor Cliff, anytime as a Christian you invoke somebody else's name who is not there with you, the yellow flag should go up. And then, okay... They just mentioned somebody's name who's not present in the room. The question is, what are they going to say about that person after they mention their name? That's what he's talking about. And if you've got a problem with a fellow believer, you've got a grievance. Against, and I'm not even talking about a sin issue. You've just got a problem with another believer. Do not raise your hand. Don't say anything right now. But I guarantee if I were to ask you and you were honest, do you, GBF member, professed Christian, in your heart right now, do you have a problem with any other believer member at GBF? I guarantee we'd have people, if they were honest, they would raise their hand. Yeah, I know they're fellow members of GBF and they're a Christian, but i got a problem with him for this and her for that and him for this. It's sad, isn't it? But that's reality because we are sinners. And that's why James, he's a realist. He's addressing the Christians, you can't do this. Man, and when you do it, you got to realize what you're doing. It is devastating. The height and the arrogance and the level of pride that is involved in this sin and then the devastation that it does and what it does to God's character, man, it's unbelievable. I don't think we think about it enough, so James is going to help us think about it to help rein this sin in. But usually, when here, here's the way it goes in the Christian community. When you invoke somebody's name behind their back 
and you've got a problem with them and you're about to say something about them in sin, or I mean, as, because you've got a problem with them, whether they sinned against you, they offended you, or you've got a problem with them, you have three options typically as a Christian. Option number one is to do what Jesus said in Matthew 18 and Matthew 5, and that is to go to that believer privately, right? And talk to him about it. That's what Jesus said. Go privately. Actually, Jesus said both parties should meet to go talk to each other, and that way they kind of meet in the middle. And they do it privately. They do it prayerfully. They do it humbly. They do it with the benefit of the doubt in love. They do it to seek all information before they come to conclusions. So when you've got a problem with somebody, you invoke their name. Option number one is to go to that person privately and communicate with them first. And if there is a sin issue, then you confront them of their sin privately first. That, is, that takes courage. And when we don't do that, when we need to do that, we are lacking courage. We are really being cowards. So that's option one. Go to them privately. Another option we have is when somebody has sinned against us or offended us. Like I said, many times the slandering that goes on behind a fellow believer's back isn't necessarily a sin issue. Many times as a pastor for 23 years in six different churches, and I've seen this time and time again, usually it comes down to an, an area that is a gray area when it comes to the Bible. It is a preferential matter. It's not even a sin issue as a matter of fact. And people are making a stink about it. And they're accusing people inappropriately. So I began to think about that. What are areas in the church and Christian life where believers routinely attack other believers verbally behind their back? Are there common themes do issues in the church where on, that they will attack them? And it was, it was clear to me. Yes, as a pastor, I see it all the time. Because I see a lot of stuff behind the scenes that maybe other people don't see. And routinely, they're in areas of preference that become extremely divisive. And character assassination reigns supreme. And it's sad, and churches divide over these issues. So here's just a couple of them. Hot potatoes in the Christian life. Uh, music. Preferences over music. I've seen it in four different churches that I've been a part of. Where other believers slander other believers. over. Pre- I'm talking about preferences in music, non-biblical issues. The style of music. What instruments were used. Uh, how we were able to see the words, either through a holy hymnal or off the wall. Uh, these have been issues of contention that unfortunately have been common in too many churches. So issues of preference when it comes to music, uh, issues of preference when it comes to philosophy of ministry and how you do things, how you do youth ministry. Should you even do youth ministry at all? Should you do programs? Or how? what grades do you divide uh, youth ministry up in? I mean, I've been in, in, in witnessed fights among Christians about those kind of things. How you run a Sunday school class. How much? How many minutes are dedicated to teaching? And do we have donuts? And do we pray? I'm serious. It's pretty sad. These are not issues of right and wrong, by the way. We need to be reminded of that. These are preferential issues where we have freedom. Uh, another divisive one, the world over in Christianity, is how you educate your children. Does the Bible require that you homeschool your children? You put them in a Christian school? Or that you put them in public school to be a witness to the lost? And, and I have known plenty of Christians who have very dogmatic positions on all three of those to a point of letting it become divisive. So my wife and I early on tried an experiment. Hey, let's, let's see everybody's perspective and let's put all of our kids through all three, public, private, and home. So we did. And so 19 years later, we kind of have a pretty good perspective. And we came to the conclusion that the Bible says parents need to educate their children. And before God, however they need to do that, that's appropriate, commanded by Scripture and allowed by Scripture, a believer has the freedom to do that. That's my answer. But anyway, 
don't be one of those Christians who becomes makes it a divisive issue and slanders other good believers behind their back because they send their children to public school. I was actually at a church one time where they said just the opposite. The leaders of the church, can you believe they send their kids to a Christian school? Because we need to be lights in the world and salt. and All of our kids, they need to go to unbelieving schools so that the teacher who believes in evolution can become a Christian for my five-year-old Christian kid. I was like, I don't think that's very realistic. But anyway, so I have witnessed that firsthand. So music, how we educate our kids in schooling, how we do methods of ministry, how we disciple, what's our view of missions, how we do missions. I mean, I could just go on and on. And again, these are not biblical issues. And I've actually had people over the years try to sit me down as the pastor and they'd be slandering somebody behind their back over one of these issues. It's like, do you realize this is not a biblical issue, number one? And have you talked to that person, by the way? No, I haven't. Then you are involved in gossip and slander. You are grieving God. You're violating Scripture. You're destroying their reputation. You're actually causing my blood to rise as a pastor of the church who loves all the members because I don't have a choice. I must. (laughs) So you need to go talk to that person. You also need to pray and have God's Spirit convict your heart. You are hardened. You are sin- you adulterous. You- I should have said that. I didn't know this passage at the time. But no, I'm just kidding. So it's a real sin we've got to deal with. And it is everywhere. So that's a good challenge for us. Uh, when we invoke somebody, another believer's name, try this. Try saying something edifying and blessed about them. Try As you think about their names, try praying for them. If you're a member of GBF, get the list of all the GBF members and pray through every name during the week. Praying God's blessing on their life. Can you imagine what would happen? to the unity in this church and what delight that would give God up in heaven for His children to think and live this way, we, we would have a, a reformation, a man, a revival we've never seen before. So that's point number one, the most important. It's the foundation for everything. And let's go on to point number two as he continues on slander and why we shouldn't do it. Point number two is malicious Christians have a device or a dismissive view of God's law. That's just a logical conclusion that James makes. He says, wow, when, you start, when you're slandering another believer behind their back when they're not around, you are, are really judging and condemning them illegitimately. And if you're condemning and uh, acting like a judge, you're actually dismissing and setting aside God's law, specifically Leviticus 19. God gave that law, and it's to, given to protect all believers that we should love our fellow believer and not slander them so that God wants their reputation to be protected. And here you're just, by, forget that law. I don't care about that law. I don't care about Leviticus 18, loving my, member, uh, my neighbor. I'm going to slander them anyway. So what you're doing is you're saying, well, God, I like most of your laws. This one I don't really care for. Or this one I don't need to abide by. So I'm just going to set it aside. So you're actually putting yourself above the law. It's kind of like when we're driving on the freeway and we say, well, I don't like that law because it says only 65. I'm going to go 75. We, we, I know some of us do that all the time. But anyway, when you do that, you're, you are a lawbreaker. And you're dismissing God's law. And that is very dangerous to do. It's arrogant. It's prideful to put ourselves above God's law. Paul said very clearly in Romans 7 and other places that God's law is good. It is holy. It is perfect. It reveals God's character. It is above us. We are below it. The very law of God reveals who God is, and we don't have the prerogative of dismissing, setting aside His laws and saying, well, obey that one, but I don't obey this one. And that's how some Christians, unfortunately, think that, well, at least I haven't murdered, at least I haven't committed adultery, at least I haven't stolen, whatever, but I've only gossiped and I've only slandered. That is the wrong way to think. God's law is like a chain. 
of 600 laws. All you've got to do is break one link. The whole chain falls apart, doesn't it? That's what James says. So, point number two, malicious Christians need to keep in mind that when they slander another believer, they're actually undermining and being dismissive of God's holy, perfect law that reflects the very perfect character of God Himself. Let's go on to point number three. Christians who gossip, and I'm using gossip as synonymous with slander. Christians who gossip have an inferior view of God. Uh, he says this at the end of verse 11, goes on to verse 12. He says, okay, if you slander another brother, you're violating Leviticus 19 and other verses or laws. As a result, you don't care about God's law. You're dismissive of God's law. You're putting yourself above the law of God. And now he wants us to think about who the lawgiver is. Not only are you dismissing the law of God, you're dismissing God Himself because He is the only, He is the lawgiver. That's God's law. When we do this, we violate His law. And so, in essence, we're telling God, God, I don't like your law, this one in particular. I'm going to dismiss that law. I'm going to assume the role of Judge Judy and I will become the judge myself and determine which laws are legitimate and which are not. And I'm going to do it for this very religious, spiritual reason. And that is why I'm doing this. And so we justify and rationalize in our own thinking why we slander other believers behind their back. And as a result, we have an inferior view of God Himself. This strikes at the very character of God that James says in verse 12. When you're doing that, you've got to realize what you're doing. You are blaspheming God, the lawgiver, and the, the only judge. Because usually what we're doing when we do this behind somebody's back, we're actually judging their motives. <clears throat> and that's what we can't do. We, don't, we can't read people's minds. We can't judge their motives or their intentions. Only God can do that. That's why... When Jesus said in Matthew 7, do not judge, primarily what he was talking about, do not judge people's motives, do not judge their thoughts, do not judge their intentions. He's, as a matter of, in the same passage, he said, but we should judge their behavior, the fruit of their behavior. You can judge people's words and their actions and compare it with Scripture. And if you need to, you point it out and confront it as sin. But don't judge their motives. That's what's going on here. Because only God knows the hearts and the minds and the motives of people. Because He is God. He is the Creator. He is omniscient. Not only that, it is His law. We don't have the right to mess and tamper with His law. Which laws we will obey, which ones we won't. Not only is God the lawgiver, He's the one that gave the law. He also has the right and the prerogative to judge every other human being according to the law. And there will be a judgment day. And that's what it says. You know, when you start judging somebody else, you're actually preempting God and His work because God is the judge and He's going to judge all of us. He's going to judge all Christians. He's going to judge all unbelievers. He judges some of us in this life on some issues. He judges everybody in the next life. So don't usurp God's role as the lawmaker and as the one who judges the law as the judge because God and God alone is the judge. And God will judge in this life and in the next. There's only one. God Almighty Himself, verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one and only one, who is able to enact the law by saving people from the law and destroying people because they violated the law without repentance. Wow. These are some heavy-duty things to keep in mind the next time we invoke another believer's name behind their back when they're not present, when we're in the presence of somebody else and we're about to say something about that person. And hopefully these things can remind us and convict our conscience. We don't want to violate God's law. We don't want to usurp His role. We don't want to blaspheme God, the only lawgiver and judge. We want to honor Him in all things and preserve the law of love, 
Love fulfills the law, said Jesus. Love fulfills the law, said Paul. Then speak lovingly about your fellow believer and your fellow Christian. Because they're in your spiritual family. They're God's children. Think about it. When you're speaking evil about another believer, you're maligning a child of Jesus. A child of the Father. When you speak evil about another believer behind their back, you're maligning and tearing down and slandering someone that Jesus died and saved and that is precious to Jesus. That's why if you're a parent and you have more than one children, you, child, you can identify this real tangibly. Or at least you should. I don't want any of my kids maligning my other kids behind their back. It's, well, we're the parents. We'll take, we'll take, noted. We'll take care of that. End of story. Let mom and dad handle that. And the same thing is true in the church. These are blessed, saved children of God that are precious to Jesus, His precious blood. He's working on them. He's sanctifying them. He's growing them. They ain't there yet, and neither are you, and neither am I, right? That's his point. And so finally, he ends with another smack right in the nose. Boom! This rhetorical challenge to all of us, and that's point number four. After Christians who gossip have an inferior view of God. Very practical, quite sobering. His rhetorical question, which is a rebuke and exclamation point on this whole discussion. Point number four, I said hypercritical Christians. By the way, as Christians, we stumble with sin. We all stumble with sin. But we also have propensities of weaknesses in certain areas of sin. Some people struggle with alcoholism more than others, right? Or sexual immorality or stealing. Well, there are some Christians who struggle more easily with this sin with being hypercritical. And many times the profile is somebody, a Christian, who actually loves truth. They love justice. They love doctrine. They love the wrath of God, which is a holy attribute of God. But then it's out of balance because it's, it's, it's lacking all those other attributes about God. His patience, His incredible forgiveness, His grace, His mercy. So there's a lack of balance there. And there are personalities of Christians who would tend to struggle and they're just hypercritical people. I remember Steve Fernandez, Pastor Steve, up in Vallejo, because he said this publicly, he's put it in a book. He just looks back at his life as an early young Christian pastor. He said, man, I can't believe how hypercritical I was. It's disgusting. It is ugly. Thank God that the Holy Spirit of God changed my heart and made me a more patient, compassionate, loving, merciful person towards other people. He told me that personally. It's also in one of his books. I've brought it up before. But it's a great illustration. Great reminder. And he attributed it to his inclination to be a hypercritical person. Because he loved truth. He's very discerning. He loved the justice of God. It was black and white. So we've got to keep these weaknesses in balance and in check, don't we? And it's with God's help and His grace. He'll, he'll help us. So last point here. Hypercritical Christians have an inflated view of self. See, that's the problem. When you start judging somebody else, oh, did you hear what they did? I mean, it's like, what about you? That's what Jesus said. You've got a two-by-four in your eye and you're worried about the splinter in that other person's eye. That is two-faced. That is hypocritical. That is a double standard. Do not do that. Uh, We are all guilty. We are all undeserving. God has been gracious gracious to all of us uh, with great mercy and we need to extend that mercy to others, don't we? And keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving like Peter was told to do by Jesus. Well, they did this. Well, forgive them. How many times should I forgive him? Like so many you can't even think, Peter. 240 times a day. The same person, the same infraction. Wow, that's incredible supernatural forgiveness. 
So here's his closing remark, uh, and we'll take that to heart and meditate on this uh, today and the rest of the week as we ask God to change our heart. Uh, after the end of verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Here it is. But who are you? See, he's talking to all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Who are you who judge your name? Who? This is a modern day translation. Who do you think you are? You, you ain't nothing, Christian. I ain't nothing. Who do I think I am to be so hypercritical of other believers and talk about them behind their back and judge their motives, impugn their character, to bypass the law of God, to usurp God's glory and His authority as lawgiver and judge? Who do I think? I, that is pathetic. And that's what James is trying to do. He's trying to take the mirror and hold it in front of our face so, he, so we can see how pathetic we are as sinners without the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God and His truth to help us in that regard. So that's, that is a great challenge. I want to close with this. Let me read Romans 12. <clears throat> great passage here where Paul says a lot of... He says it a lot of different ways that play into this about how we should be gracious and not be judgmental and slanderous towards other believers and how we need to be preserving unity and love. And actually, it's, it's all here are ways we need to live continually in the act of love. And love fulfills the law, Paul says in Romans uh, at the end of chapter 13. But in chapter 12, starting at verse 9, let your love be without hypocrisy. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another. Get that. Give preference. I, that's not my preference of music, but I like your music. I'll go, go ahead and give me that organ. Go ahead and give me that guitar. By the way, the banjo, that's one of my favorite instruments. Uh, so I'm thoroughly enjoying this this morning. He goes on. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Oh, verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Think the same way. Think in harmony with them. Do not be haughty. Don't be proud. Associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. See, that's the problem. Don't be judgmental. Don't be a slander. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Don't slander another believer. Be at peace with them. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, on the contrary, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. And finally, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.